we just finished the first miracle of the Lord uh, at the beginning of chapter 2 last time. The turning of water into wine. And so uh, we saw as we come through the last half of chapter 1 into chapter 2, John was following the days pretty closely there and it looks like maybe the seventh day after John's witness was the day that he turned the water into wine. And remembering the theme of these chapters uh, 2, 3, 4 is out with the old and in with the new, so to speak. The Old Testament is passing away and a better, more perfect New Testament is being ushered in by Jesus Christ. And that evidenced by the first miracle of the Lord. He took the old water of washing and purifying of the Jews and transformed it into the joy of wine of the Holy Ghost. What once was a ceremony and a religious act and something that I did now became a work of God that entered into me and that brought not just change in my life, but instead of a ceremony now and a going through the motions, the life of the Holy Spirit works in the life of the believers And so now we're going to come to verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. So maybe it sounds like a a detail that's unnecessary, but if you look in Matthew, you can read a little more. Leaving Nazareth, remember that they left Bethlehem fleeing Herod because Herod was going to kill all of the babies two and under in an effort to kill this king, the Lord Jesus. They fled and went to Egypt and after a while God told them to come out of Egypt and Herod's son was reigning. So instead of going back to their home country, they turned aside to Nazareth and in Matthew chapter 4 verse 13, leaving Nazareth he came and dwelt in Capernaum which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtalim. So he's going to now dwell in Capernaum. And you're going to hear Capernaum several times in the Gospels. But that's where he, that's where he resides as a man. And so they leave here this wedding in Cana of Galilee. And they go back home. And they abide there, the Bible says here, not many days. So see, this is the life of a man that we're following here. We would say just a few days. And then in verse 12, After this he went down to Capernaum, and his mother and his brethren, his disciples, they continued there not many days, and the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. So the Lord goes home after this wedding, and... What happens in the meantime, we realize John says in chapter 20 that this is just a few of the miracles and signs and wonders 
that this man did. And if they were all recorded, then the world couldn't contain the books of what this man Jesus did while he was alive on the earth. And so here, what happened in these days, we don't have that detail, but he goes home from the wedding where he turned water into wine, and it looks like there was just a handful of people, some servants, the disciples, and his mother and brothers that knew that a miracle had happened there. And Jesus hadn't made any enemies up to this point. But he's about to begin to upset the status quo of the religious crowd in Jerusalem. And so why is he going to leave Capernaum and go? Well, it's going to be the Passover feast. And this is probably three years here before he's crucified. He's going to be crucified on the Passover. He is the literal fulfillment of the Passover feast. And so he's going to come to Jerusalem. And uh, if you read in Luke chapter 2, verse 41... Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. This was the custom of the family. And it was the custom of the Jews that on these feast days, though they were dispersed and lived in different parts of the world, you returned to Jerusalem for these feast days, uh, for these religious ceremonies. And you know, it's not that anything was wrong. This was the commandment of God. They were to come together yearly, perpetually, in remembrance of what God did for the children of Israel down in Egypt and also a looking ahead to what God was going to do for uh, His people through the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So a great amount of people. You see that? Jerusalem may be a town of uh, 50,000, 100,000. I'm just making up numbers. But at this time... And at the religious feast time, Passover maybe being the biggest, at this time people from everywhere came to Jerusalem. The place is going to be full of people. And so here Jesus comes and what he finds and found in the temple. So he comes to the temple and there's a booth of people selling oxen, there's a booth with people selling sheep. You remember how these sacrifices were to go? They were to sacrifice a a lamb without blemish and without spot to be uh, uh, one of the the first year of the flock there they were to pick. And it was to be sacrificed in the place of the firstborn. That's the way the original Passover was. And so now they had set up these booths right there as you come into the temple complex. They had people selling oxen. They had people selling lambs. They had changers of money because they said the Roman money or the Greek money, these different currencies, they're unclean Gentile currencies. If you're going to offer anything down at the temple, you're going to have to change that Gentile currency into that that we use here in Jerusalem. So it was a a foreign exchange of money there. You can go to the bank and get $100 worth of pesos. They're exchanging currency with you. But all of this was set up for profit and for gain. The Lord says here, you've made my house a house of merchandise. An emporium is the word. We would liken it to a, a shopping mall or the outlet malls that you go to. It would be a market in this day 
there was a place in the city they would come and set up tents and set up places to sail. And it would be here that maybe the clothes or the robe sellers, the sandal sellers, those that, that grew vegetables, those that had fruit, those that sold meat and fish, they all come to one market. And people would go there and whatever you needed you could find there. And so the Lord says you've turned the house of God into a house of merchandise. It's a one-stop shop for religion. And you know what it's become? It's become habit and it's become tradition and it's become ceremony. And for all those in control of it, it's become profit. Because the money changer, he's charging a fee. He's going to take your Roman coin and switch it for the coin at uh, of the temple and he's going to make money off of that when you switch it. And the man that's got the sheep, if you're going to buy one for the Passover, then he's going to make money off of that transaction. The ox, the ox that's going to be bought, that man selling the ox is going to make money off the transaction. And most likely the priests in the temple, they rented the booze to these folks so they were making money by them being there. And now you think about how it was now. In this day, that was just the way things were done. People were used to that. They thought nothing about it. This is the way we operate now. And you look at it, it's so much easier for people. It's all in one place. It's better this way. And when you come to Jerusalem in this day, you... You didn't think anything about it. This is the way it was. You see, we get into a tradition, and a lot of times, a lot of times it's not even known why it's done like it is. That's just the way it's always been done. That's just the way it's operated. But the Lord's going to come and, and He's going to make a scourge. And he's going to whip the animals out of the temple. He's going to overturn the money changers' tables. And he's going, to, he's going to say to them, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Don't make it a market. A place where worship is reduced to an exchange of money and a profit in money for some, and a profit in I've done my part in others. And you go home and the God's truth, God's never thought of. The true meaning of the sacrifice is never considered in the heart. The way God designed this, you were to bring this lamb into your house and set it apart and you were to feed it. And You know what there was to be? There was to be an affection there. And when, when that lamb was taken and its throat cut on the altar, there was to be the feeling there of what sin and ungodliness has cost me. All of that's gone. And it's watered down tradition and religion. I go down with $100. I pay the money. The priest gets the lamb right from the table and goes in and, and I'm done. And who knows, they may have brought the same lamb back out and sold it to the next person. We know that's the way the idolatrous temples worked. 
He says, listen, in Acts 19.24, For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom when he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. So what did they do? The temple of Diana. If you were going to worship Diana, you had to buy one of these little uh, shrines from these silversmiths. You would take that shrine, you would go down to the temple, and you left it there on the altar. At the end of the day, the priest gathered all those up and would sell them back to the silversmiths. And everybody's making a dollar off of it. It was a way of profit and gain for man. And if you're not careful, that's what religion always becomes. If it's left in the hands and the will of man, it becomes about me and what can I get out of this? Let's make it convenient. Let's make it easy. Let's bring it in and, you know, I, I, I realize... Money's a big, a big problem. The love of money. I mean, the Lord says the love of money's the root of all evil, and I, I believe that fits into every fabric of society. Man is willing, if you start to hurt the pocketbook, we're willing to set aside morals. We're willing to set aside what's right. We're willing to hide and run and, and to honest to God, do evil and compromise what we know to be right. Because we don't want to hurt our money. And when religion becomes about money, when the church becomes about money, then we're going to draw back in order to keep the money. If it's going to jeopardize, if it's going to jeopardize my profit, we don't want to hurt any of that. And so it's, we see that though. I, I believe everybody agrees with that. But if you're not careful, that'll seep into reputation and what man thinks about you. And instead of standing for the truth, man bows down to what man thinks and what man says so that my reputation isn't harmed among the eyes and the thinking of man. So they had sold the truth here in this day. They had sold it for a profit. The Bible says in Timothy, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such turn away. They thought that the more they made, the more profit that was brought in, the more godly that they were. Is that true? By the Word of God, that's not true. And so here the Lord is going to drive them out. Now you see now, what's the Lord going to look like in the eyes of the people? You, can you hear this? Why them tables have been there as long as I've been alive. That's the way that it's always been. It's been like that for 250 years. Maybe even longer than that. What is, what's got, this man's a lunatic. He's lost his mind. This is madness. You know what he's done? 
he's turned over the cart. And you know what there's going to be? There's going to be a consideration here. What's going on down at the temple and is it the right thing? Is it of God or is this convenience? Is this ease? Is this merchandise? Now this is apparently at the beginning of Jesus' ministry here. In the other Gospels, He cleanses the temple and it looks like the end of His ministry there. Did He do this twice? It looks like that most likely the Lord's going to do this twice. The second time He's going to quote Scripture out of the Old Testament that you've made this a den of thieves, a place of thievery, a place of extortion, a place where you're taking advantage of the emotions of man. You're using God to manipulate emotions. You're using reputations to manipulate people. You're pressuring man into doing these things and the God's truth, the pressure's there and you're doing this because you want to profit from it. Through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. You're their merchandise. If you owned a store, you would sell your merchandise and that's what would bring you profit. You see, to these, you're the merchandise. You're the one that they profit from. And when you boil it down down to the where the rubber meets the road, whether you're truly saved or not, doesn't matter to them. But if you'll just come to an altar and make a profession and boost their reputation, they're tickled slapped to death with that. Whether God's really the one drawing and Honest to God, a new birth. You're going to see in chapter 3, a new birth is required. Whether God's doing a work or not, doesn't matter to them. They're in it for their self, for their profit, and for their reputation. That's the way it was here. And Jesus says, make not my father's house. Now, I don't think they heard that this time. That's going to become a real problem in the future. In John chapter 5, just a couple chapters over, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill Him, because not only had He broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was His Father. Was He trying to make them angry? I mean, people would say that, wouldn't they? He's just trying to start something. But do you see what he's doing? Is He's just t- speaking the truth. When Jesus says, my father's house, is he telling a fib? No. He's telling the truth. Sure. This was his father's house. And he was cleansing it. And his disciples remembered. Now, when did they remember? I think that's a good question. If you look down in chapter or verse 22, you're going to read, when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered. So, I don't know for sure, but I don't believe they remembered this Scripture right here. What's going to happen is Jesus is going to be resurrected. 
they're going to be filled with a spirit and the Holy Ghost is going to bring to their remembrance all of these things that He said. His disciples remembered, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. A quote from Psalm 69.9. Now there's a lot more in this verse than what first meets the eye has consumed me. We think, well, he's consumed with anger or grief over the way they're treating God's house. But really the word means to be devoured, to be eaten, to be destroyed. You know what's going to bring all of the hatred and all of the the vile and vitriol of man against the Lord Jesus and what's going to result in Him being crucified? His zeal for the glory of the Father and of the house of God. Remember one of the one of the accusations they hurl at the Lord at the end was he said he would destroy the temple and build it back. So the zeal of the Lord Jesus is what's going to lead to him being consumed. And if you're going to stand on the truth, if you will stand for the truth of the word of God, your reputation won't be profited in our world today. You'll pay for that just as the Lord Jesus did. So his disciples remembered. Now in verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign shewest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? So here's the question. What authority do you have to do this? You can hear that question, can't you? If you're going to go to the Tanger outlets and say you need to close this store immediately and don't reopen the rest of the day. Somebody's going to say, who are you? And what authority do you have to take that action? Well, that's what the priests and those in charge of the temple, that's what they're asking. You're shutting down my money-making business here. What authority or what sign can you show us something? You know what the police officer's going to do? If he's not in uniform, he's going to pull out his wallet and open her up. He's going to show you his badge. That's a sign of his authority. Wouldn't you say that's true? You remember when Paul went down to Damascus? He had papers, warrants for the arrests of Christians. You know what that was? That was a sign of his authority. That was his badge. So when somebody said, what authority do you have to arrest these people? Well, I've got this sign right here. So they're asking Jesus, What's your authority? What sign are you going to show us seeing that you do these things? In John chapter 20 verse 30, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples. So were there signs? Were there indications of Jesus' authority and power? There were, but this is Jesus' answer to their question. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now they're going to accuse Jesus of saying that He would destroy the temple and in three days raise it up. But they're carnally minded and they're thinking of the building there. But what Jesus says 
if you look at that Greek word there, it doesn't mean he's destroying, but he's saying you destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. So what is the indication that he has the authority to do this work? His resurrection. When he says he was raised again for our justification, that was the proof, the declaration of God that this man was indeed the Son of God. He was indeed an acceptable sacrifice for our sins and that in Him we can have atonement and be forgiven of our sins. The sign of that was the resurrection. He raised the dead. The blind saw, the lame walked, the sick were healed. All of that happened. But the proof was His resurrection from the dead. So in, in Matthew chapter 12, this is what he says there. An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So again, the, the picture is I'm going to be killed my body is going to be laid in a grave and in three days my body is going to resurrect. I'm going to come back to life and live. And at that point there is no power, there's no other uh, source that can be credited other than this man must have been the Son of God. His miracles and works, as wondrous as they were, they said he does this by Beelzebub. The devil is doing these works through him to deceive the people. That's what they said. But this resurrection from the dead was, as he says in Romans 1 verse 4, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. God declared His Son. And remember at the beginning of this chapter, that's what Jesus told Mary. Mine hour's not come. See, it's all pointing to this hour. The hour of His sacrifice, His burial and His resurrection. That's the work, that's the purpose, that's the reason that He's come. And it's that work that is evidence of who He is. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. Will thou rear it up in three days? But He spake of the temple of His body. When therefore He was risen from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said unto them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So, their answer is, this building took 46 years to build. And you're telling me you're going to build it in three days. Now that sounds, you want to make fun of them for saying such things. Because we have the benefit of hindsight. 
we know what he's really talking about because the Scripture tells us what he's really talking about. But you put yourself in the shoes that they're standing in the temple complex. They say, what authority do you have to do this? And all Jesus says is, you destroy the temple and I'll build it back in three days. So what would you think? Without an illuminating Spirit of God revealing what's truly being said, you wouldn't know what He was talking about. Nicodemus in chapter 3, he's not going to know what the Lord's talking about. You know what's going to have to happen? Illumination. I can say a new birth. Till God illuminates you to that need, you don't know what I'm talking about. I can say indwelling Spirit of God, but until God reveals that to you, you don't know what I'm talking about. Why do people think that crying is the Spirit? Because they don't know what the Spirit is. They don't know how He moves among men. They don't know what it's like to have Him to live in their heart. They are carnally minded and the carnal mind cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. This isn't the only time you're going to hear this. They're going to say in next chapters, Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood. They were offended at that. But now if you're listening to the man Jesus, see, we've got hindsight. We know what He's saying. You put yourself there, it sounds like He's saying, we're going to have to eat Him and drink His blood. It's disgusting, isn't it? But His words were spirit. His words were not carnal. But carnal man can't see it. Carnal man can act like it. He can imitate what he sees. But to truly understand what's going on without illuminating and the power of the Holy Spirit working in the heart, he cannot see He cannot know, nor can he understand. So here they say, that's the most foolish thing I've ever heard, that you're going to build this temple. Well, I say you must be born again, and that's foolish to you too. You see, man's the same. Man can't come to the understanding without the Holy Spirit illuminating that's when, the, that's when the disciples are going to put all this together. See, sometimes we be guilty of thinking, well, they knew everything that was going on all the time. That's not the case. They're watching this go on, but they don't know the significance of this. And it says it here, when He was risen from the dead, they remembered. Listen to a couple scriptures in John 12, 16. These things understood not, His disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered. In John 14, this is the Lord Jesus, the Comforter which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, He shall teach you all things. They're just witnessing this and they don't know what to think. Why, they they had it all figured out. Well, we read that after he was buried 
and resurrected. There was two of them on the road to Emmaus and they were walking back and they were perplexed. We thought He was the Son of God. We thought He was the Messiah. But we saw them kill Him down at Jerusalem. That should have never happened. And now we've heard that He's rose from the dead. We don't know what to think. But you know what God's going to do? Jesus there, the resurrected Jesus, is going to walk them through the Scriptures. And He's going to prove from Moses and all the prophets what the Word of God said about Him. What's happening? The Holy Spirit is bringing to remembrance all of these things. He is their guide into the truth. So see, three and a half years with the Lord Jesus at His feet, hearing His teaching, without an illuminating Spirit, we can't get the pieces to go together. It's a jigsaw puzzle that we can't get the first piece to fit. (coughs) Have you ever sat there and looked at a puzzle until your eyes go crossed and you can't find another piece and you just leave it? And you come back and it's laying there just like it was before and you can see it then. Well, this, there, and you get three or four pieces in a row. You know, that's the way this is by the Holy Spirit. They've sat there and they've heard Him teach. They've saw all of these actions. They didn't understand it at the time. But when the Holy Spirit comes, He opens their eyes and their hearts and they begin to put Scripture with what they saw the Lord Jesus do, and they begin to see it all together. God is putting it together in their minds. And now in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which... So what's Peter saying? This is my second epistle, and in both of the epistles, I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Peter is speaking these words of God not to people that don't know, but it's a stirring up to remembrance of what they did know. See, that's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to illuminate these disciples and allow them to see and understand what Jesus was really doing. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us today. He opens our eyes and lets us to see the true works of the Lord Jesus. His disciples remembered that He had said unto them, and they believed the Scripture and the Word which Jesus had said. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in His name, when they saw the miracles which He did. But Jesus did not commit Himself unto them, because He knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. So now, we're still here in Jerusalem. We're still at the Passover feast. Now, they're going to see the signs, the miracles which He did, and there's going to be people believe. So, Either he's talking here about the cleansing of the temple and the discourse with the priests and the Pharisees or he's talking about other 
miracles, other signs and indications that the Lord performed that are not recorded here. Either way, the Lord is working and there are many that believed in His name. Listen to a couple places. In John seven thirty one, And many of the people believed on Him and said... Now, now listen. You think, well, these people believe they're saved. I think by the next two verses you realize that's not true. This is John chapter 7, verse 31. And many of the people believed on Him and said, When Christ cometh, will He do more miracles than these which this man has done? Does that sound like people that are truly illuminated and know who the Lord is? No, they're saying, this man's an amazing man. When the Messiah really does come. See, they don't know who He is. Is this genuine faith? Is this genuine life-saving belief? In John chapter 8, verse 30, And as He spake these words, many believed on Him. Then said Jesus to the Jews which believed on Him, If you continue in My word, then are you My disciples indeed. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So if there's genuine belief, if there is genuine God-brought faith, there will be a new creature that's born out of that life. Now, he's either talking about God making a new creature here, or you've believed, now you've got to do it yourself. And your works determine whether you're saved. It's got to be one of the two. So, did these people genuinely believe? In James chapter 2, verse 19, Thou believest there is one good God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works, is dead. See, you've got to work or you're not saved. If you're not careful, you get it backwards. So often it's backwards. It's not that I'm working in order to be saved. But if you are genuinely and truly saved, your life will be changed and works will be produced from genuine faith. How do you know whether faith is genuine or not? The Bible says that these believed on Him. The Bible says in chapter 7 that these believe on Him. James said you believe in one God, you've done well. But the devils believe. How do we know whether it's genuine or not? Whether that faith is from God or from man. How do you know the difference? By the life. Is there a new creature? If my faith does not change my life, then my faith is not of God. Faith without works, without a change of life, is dead. Being alone. So they believed when they saw the miracles, which He did. But Jesus did not commit Himself unto them, because He knew all men. So Jesus did not commit 
that word means to have faith in, upon, or with respect to, to credit, or to entrust. It's that same word believe. They, so what he's saying is, they believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Boy, that sounds, that sounds cold, doesn't it? They said they believed Him. They made profession that they believed Him. But Jesus didn't believe them. Why didn't Jesus believe them? Because He knows what's in man. Discerning. You see that? We're to have discernment. We're to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We're to have eyes that is exercised and able to discern between good and evil. But are we perfect in that? Do you reckon you ever perceive something as evil that's really not evil? You reckon you ever perceive something as good that's really not good? Our discernment's imperfect, even at our best state. Of ourselves, we can be wrong. But the Lord's never wrong, is He? He never makes a wrong judgment. Is He wrong in not believing in these folks? No, because He knows. That word means to know absolutely. You got an absolute knowledge about anything. He knows absolutely every detail completely. Does He not? Do you believe that, that God has that kind of knowledge? We would say omnipotent. All-knowing, all-seeing, not just at this moment as it happens, but all through the span of time, God knows everything about every individual at every moment and at every time. Does God know that? By the Word of God, He does. And Jesus, the man Jesus on the earth, He knew these people and He knew them absolutely. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He didn't need somebody to tell him what was going on. You, you think about the courtroom word there. If we've got a jury trial, the problem is the jury don't know what happened. So you know what you've got to do? You've got to have witnesses. You're going to bring evidence and you're going to bring witnesses and you're trying to prove to these people that don't know what happened what really went on. You're building your case to try to prove the truth. The Lord don't need a jury testimony. He don't need evidence because He knows absolutely every detail about every individual. He don't need me to tell Him what I am. And He don't need you to speak for me. And what you say about me don't make a hill of beans to Him. He already knows. If you showed a jury video evidence of a crime, 
that was beyond any question that proved this man was guilty of what he's accused of. What is that defendant and the lawyer defending him? What's he going to say to change their mind? They know what happened. We saw it happen. So, you think you're going to change God's mind? He knows. In John 5.42, I know you that you have not the love of God in you. First Chronicles 28, David's speaking to Solomon. Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thought. Where does God get? Into the very thinking of man. He's not waiting on me to do it to prove whether it's in my heart or not. He knows what's in my heart before I ever do. The Word of God is said to be as sharp as any two-edged sword. Where does it get? You know the, you know the verse. How far does the Word of God get? And is a discerner. So God gets down beyond what me and you can judge. We judge what we see happen. God knows what's in the heart without anything happening. So with that in mind, in Hebrews 4.13, one more scripture, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. There's nothing covered up. Nothing hidden. Everything is naked. And listen to the way that's worded. All things are naked and opened. Not open, but naked and opened. I might be naked and I might cover up and hide myself. But things are there's nothing hid from God. So think about how silly it is to think that we're going to fool this God whom we believe already knows everything at all times. You believe that, don't you? So does God buy any of my pretense and worship, any of my testimony, any of my claims that I know are not true. You think that goes on. You better believe it goes on. God ain't bought any of it because God knows what's in you. He knows who you are. He knows what you think and He knows what your intentions are. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, some of you may already know what this is. Samuel has come to Jesse's house and David's oldest brother is standing there. And Samuel thinks this is the one. And the Lord said to Samuel, I look not on the outward appearance, 
but I'm looking in the heart. So, what I look like on the outside, does that matter anything at all? What kind of image I promote, does that matter anything at all? Is God going to buy anything that I tell Him because He doesn't know any better? So then, if all that's true, how foolish is it for me to think that God's buying what I'm selling Him today? God knew the intent from the very beginning. That's all.